Queensland has a long history of overrepresentation of Indigenous youth in custody, and now its government has passed laws allowing the detention of children for extended periods in adult prisons and police watchhouses. When the sudden law change was criticised, the government responded that minors had been detained in these places for extended periods for 30 years. It wasn't anything new. The laws were just formalising the practice. A recent court case highlighted that it was illegal to keep children on remand in adult lockups, so the government had to either override the state's Human Rights Act or release the kids that were locked up. While this is unfolding in Queensland, we have a case on the New South Wales South Coast and another one in Western Australia, which I'm also interested in discussing with our guest, George Newhouse. George has worked for years in human rights law and is principal solicitor and co-founder of the National Justice Project. George Newhouse, welcome back to Speaking Out. It's great to see you, Larissa. Let's start with Queensland's new laws. What do you make of this change? I mean, these changes are absolutely scandalous. Can you believe that the Queensland government had to suspend um, the Human Rights Act to pass laws which are going to keep kids in concrete cages indefinitely? You've had hundreds of kids being kept in lockups, which are which are designed for adults to be kept for up to forty eight hours, but instead they've been kept in these lockups for weeks on end. I just can't believe that a government would legislate cruelty like this. This isn't going to be an obvious question, but just for people that are, I guess, fixated on the issue of law and order and think this is an appropriate measure, why is it not appropriate for minors to be detained in adult prisons and police watchhouses? Look, can I just say this before we go into why it's not appropriate. This law and order argument is just a furphy. This is about the failure of the Queensland government to provide um, adequate diversionary activities to keep kids out of the justice system. And if they are going to arrest them, to provide them with appropriate accommodation. This is the government covering up their failures with claims of get tough on crime. But it's not appropriate for a number of reasons. First of all, Imagine a young girl in a police station without appropriate facilities to shower, get changed, uh, health care. The, the, these facilities are essentially a concrete box. There are animals that are being treated better than these kids. They are, there's no education. There's no proper health and, and rehabilitation facilities. It's just locking up kids in a box and it's totally inappropriate. For further context, in 2021, Queensland passed legislation removing the presumption in favour of bail for some children, which is actually something that happens around the country. Presumptions against bail become an increasing part of the legislative framework. Um, From your perspective, why is this impacting on First Nations children disproportionately? Um, How many kids are we talking about? How long has it been going on for Well, the statistics that I've seen indicate that hundreds of kids are being kept in these lockups and half of them are First Nations kids. Now, that is a gross overrepresentation. When you look at the proportion of First Nations people in our country, it's around 3%, and yet 50% of the kids being kept in these harmful environments are First Nations. And if you ask why, it's because police discriminatorily um, impose the law on First Nations people. They harass and target Aboriginal communities. And that's why you're seeing a disproportionate number of Aboriginal children 
ending up in these lockups. They're police lockups. The police are a funnel into the criminal justice system. Instead of working with community to divert children away from the criminal justice system, they're hoovering them up, hitting them with multiple offences and ensuring that they have a life of a merry-go-round of the criminal justice system. What should the Queensland government be doing instead to keep First Nations children out of these situations? That's, a, that's an interesting question. Any solutions must come from community, right? That, it, the Queensland government needs to work with each individual community and come up with solutions to keep young children out of the criminal justice system. It's not a one-size-fits-all solution. You need to actually hear the voices of community because they've got the answers. But funding diversionary activities making sure that there's uh, transport for kids to get to school. And uh, there's a million and one potential solutions, but the Queensland government aren't funding them. What they're funding is a jail system to cover up their failures of, you know, um, welfare support, housing support, uh, health support and education support for communities. So really addressing the underlying issues. In a nutshell, that's right. Yeah, if you don't under, if you don't address the underlying issues, you're just going to see more and more kids in this position. And of course, the consequence of that is, you guess you would have seen from your work that once a child is locked up in this way, they've got a higher risk of staying in contact with the criminal justice system. Unfortunately, that's right. As I said, the police focus their attention on Aboriginal children and Aboriginal communities in in Queensland. And yet there are no resources or encouragement for the police to divert the children away from that system. And when they do come into contact with police, they don't just hit them with one offence. They fit fit them up with a string of offences. So each time they come before a court, they have multiple charges and it makes them look bad. This is a system that's designed to keep kids incarcerated as as young offenders and then to go on to adult prison. And the government would save an absolute fortune if they actually started to spend money diverting kids away and adults away from the criminal justice system by addressing the underlying issues. George, we've had you here before talking about the Mullaly case in Western Australia, which is a horrific case where a young baby was brutally murdered by a woman's partner and she and her father, the baby's grandfather, uh, had been uh, charged by the police as they were trying to get attention for this kidnapping. There have been some developments in this case. Can you just first of all fill in the gaps of the story that I've told for the things that people should remember about this case and its circumstances? Look, this is quite a traumatic story, so I want to warn your listeners Uh, This was a situation where the West Australian police attended a brutal attack on um, Tamika Mullaly by her her partner. The police, instead of supporting Tamika and caring for her, treated the victim as, as a criminal. She did not want to speak to the police. She did not have to speak to the police as a victim of a crime, but they harassed her until she lashed out and then they basically continued an assault on her and arrested her and her father who'd turned up trying to stop the police from harming his daughter who'd already been brutalised. 
What, what's so horrific about this case is not just the way they treated uh, an innocent victim of a crime, but rather they left her baby behind at the scene of the crime where the perpetrator was able to come back and abduct the child. So the police were, in our view and the family's view, quite negligent in leaving a child behind at the scene of a violent attack. And then when the family did find out about the abduction of the baby, the police did not go and look for the child. Um, After the baby had been abducted and horrifically murdered, the police persisted with charges against Tamika and her father. And uh, it's taken nearly a decade to get some justice for the family. So we had uh, the Attorney General uh, of West Australia apologise publicly in Parliament to the family. That was about a year or so ago. And he also pardoned them. It was one of the last acts of West Australian Governor Kim Beasley to pardon both Tamika and her dad, Ted. Now, that only went part of the way uh, because the family still had ongoing race discrimination complaints against the West Australian government. And I can tell you that they have now resolved themselves. I can't reveal um, the details, but the family have, are happy with the response of the West Australian government in that regard. But there's still one outstanding matter, um, Larissa. The, the coroner, the state coroner of Western Australia refuses to investigate the death. We have gone to that coroner and on behalf of the family argued that there are serious issues about the way the West Australian police treat uh, First Nations victims of domestic violence and the safety of their children. I mean, this is a horrific case. George... Another case you've been involved in recently I'd like to talk to you about because we do a lot in of coverage here on Speaking Out on the issue of um, Aboriginal children in out-of-home care and the importance of cultural connection and connection with family. Um, you've been involved with a case on the New South Wales south coast near Bermagui, Um and I'd just like to talk to you about the inquest findings that were handed down last week into the death of George Campbell, a Ewan Dungadi Tharawal teenager who was in the care of the Department of Communities and Justice when he was um, found dead. Um, how did you get involved in the case and what did the coroner find? Um, we were asked to get involved by the family because unlike a death in custody where the New South Wales Aboriginal Legal Service has funding to cover such inquests, there was no funding for a child who died in state care. So we felt that this was a really important issue because it's extremely rare to actually lift the lid of what happens to children um, in the Department of uh, Child Protection's care there are legislative prohibitions on the publication of their names and details about what's happened to individual children. But a death uh, in that environment actually gives uh, the world an opportunity to see what's going on because publication of an inquest finding is legally permitted. So we felt that it was actually important for the world to understand how First Nations children were treated by the system, um, and in particular one that ended in such tragic circumstances. So George, what were the findings of the coroner? The New South Wales State Coroner 
found that George required appropriate, careful and intensive supervision if he was to have a reasonable chance of achieving some measure of stability in his adult life. And the coroner drew attention to the failings of DCJ to provide George with culturally safe care that he really needed. She said, I acknowledge the concerns expressed on behalf of Karen Campbell, George's mum, and agree that a cultural plan is integral to the immediate and lifelong social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children and young people and should actively facilitate their connections to family, kin, community, country and culture. Now, that was quite a profound statement about the failings of DCJ. The family go further. They say that if George had stayed with family members in kinship care, that he would have been alive today. So from their perspective, George should have stayed in community. If he'd stayed in community and not been fostered out, he might be alive today. George, I'm just wanting to um, get your thoughts on what it means when there is a coronial inquest that makes these kind of findings. Because I think people listening and hearing these circumstances would think that this must be a trigger for some kind of change. What is the consequence of a coroner making these kind of findings? Well, first of all, DCJ were put under the microscope. The Department of um, Justice were put under the Microsoft. They had to justify their position. They had to justify the actions that their team took. And they they acknowledged that there was a merry-go-round of, of, of um, carers. There was a lack of attention paid to George's needs. They weren't culturally appropriate. And they have indicated to the coroner that they're going to change their approach. Now, we are yet to see that in action, But I think what a coronial inquest does in New South Wales is give accountability because they, uh, the the department had to front up and explain to the coroner what had gone wrong and they were reasonably uh, open about that uh, and then indicate what they've done to rectify the situation. Now, as I said, um, we'll be watching to make sure that those changes are implemented and they actually do save lives in the future because the family believe that lives are at stake if culturally appropriate care is not provided to First Nations children. And and they also don't believe that fostering children out of community is a way forward either. It's absolutely essential that family and community are supported financially and emotionally and with health and education resources to enable these children to live meaningful lives. I've mentioned that we cover this issue a lot on Speaking Out. It's very close to my heart. And uh, what you're saying seems to resonate with a lot of the First Nations people working in this space who really underline the importance of the First Nations community-controlled organisations in this space. Absolutely. And you've reminded me that's an important point that the coroner didn't make, that these initiatives should be uh, led by First Nations organisations, that that would really help change attitudes. Unfortunately, it's all still in-house. But one day we might see First Nations organisations leading the protection and cultural safety of such vulnerable children. 
We've already talked about a fair bit of your work um, just in this small conversation, uh, but we've been looking um, through the show at the announcement of the referendum date. And I was just wondering if you could share with us how the work that we've discussed with you before on the call it out register might be relevant to people at this time. Well, I think that it's a really good point. It doesn't matter whether an individual wants to vote yes, no, or is undecided, there is uh, an outbreak of racism that seems to be permitted by this debate. And what Call It Out is doing, callitout.com.au is a register where people can register acts of discrimination and racism. And if anyone sees racism on the internet, social media, television, based on well, for any reason, but particularly based on this referendum, please report it. We work with Jambana Institute on the callitout.com.au and we will be reporting on the outbreak of racism around the referendum. So as I said, this isn't political. We're not advocating yay or nay. We're saying if you see racism, please report it. That's an important thing about the register that you've spoken to us about before. It's either you experience yourself or you see an act, you can register it. Absolutely. That's right. You don't have to experience yourself. And we encourage allies to report acts of racism as well. So if you see it or hear it or feel it, please report it and it will be processed through the Jambana Institute and reported on. George, thank you so much for being with us on Speaking Out. It is always striking when we chat that you work with the most difficult cases, really support First Nations families going through the legal system. So thank you for doing that work and for sharing your insights with us. Thanks for having me. That's Principal Solicitor at the National Justice Project, George Newhouse. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.